Off the top of your head, what would you say are the five most controversial topics in evangelicalism today? (laughs) Well, there are so many. Let's see. The three C's, CRT, Christian nationalism, and complementarianism. Uh Uh-huh. And a lot of isms. Indeed. And I would add deconstruction and vaccines. Yeah, a lot of a lot of sharks in those waters. One minefield after another. It's no walk in the park, let's just say that. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women making our way and making some waves in New York. I am Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. Okay, but... I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief... I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Really, it does seem like we are living in an age of rage right now. I feel totally at peace and never stirred up by anything going on in the news. I have no idea what you're talking about. Sure, Caitlin. I've seen you step into more than your fair share of debates online. Ooh. (laughs) I feel like I'm being held accountable right now. Yeah, I think it's part of my personality. I enjoy debate, but I sometimes wonder if that is a healthy instinct. And certainly for people who enjoy debate, now is a time of where you can find a lot of it on the internet. Yeah, it's your heyday, really, if you like to fight. I mean, sure, like... On one level it is, but I seriously question the health of online debate on a frequent basis. So when do you feel like you started to notice a, I don't know, like a shift in the tone of public conversations, whether that was online or on TV or whatever? When do you think it started to turn more angry? So if I understand correctly, of course, a lot of political scientists and analysts would say, well, we're in a time where it's easier to be in camps Mm -hmm. and to not have to interact with people in the other camp unless you're disagreeing with them. Mm -hmm. Personally, I felt that our political and public discourse took a significant turn for the worse with the election of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. His tone, his posture, his way of talking about people set the bar very low. Yeah. (laughs) And I think I think no matter which side you're on, I mean, I I feel like many times I heard even supporters of Donald Trump that I knew say, well, I just wish he'd stay off Twitter or I wish he wouldn't say it in that way, like so hyperbolic or so insensitively. I mean, if you think about the word inflammatory, like uh, something being inflamed, being infected. Mm -hmm. I just think the way that he used his words added so much inflammation to our body politic. (laughs) And obviously, (laughs) we're doing all the metaphors today. I'm imagining a fire, and he just kept (laughs) throwing things on top of it and blowing on it and making it 
bigger and bigger. Yes. And of course, that kind of rhetoric that is very angry, dehumanizing, it's going to incite a reaction of the same degree or even more. Right. So I would say, of course, there are forces beyond Donald Trump, as Mm -hmm. we've talked about. I don't think social media always helps us. Mm -hmm. But certainly, I think there was a major turn in 2016. And I don't know that we fully recovered from that downturn in the quality of public discourse. I would agree. And I would also agree with something you sort of hinted at, which is that it's not just one side anymore or the other. It truly has become the norm for how a lot of debate plays out, especially, I think, maybe especially online, but I would say in other arenas, too. There's a sense that the other side isn't just wrong or incorrect, but they're bad. Yeah. And they're and they're like out to destroy something that we hold really dear. They don't have actual legitimate reasons for believing what they do. It's like they're just bad. Right. Debate doesn't seem to go well <laughs> when people are treating each other as the embodiment of evil, right? This hits close to home to me. I think in some ways, you know, I might have been like, woo, metaphor alert. Uh, like the frog in the kettle in this where I didn't realize how much I was being infected with this kind of discourse. And I remember when I realized it was becoming a real problem for me, not just something I was seeing online, but I was becoming this way too, was I was at home visiting my parents, I don't know, two or three years ago, maybe more now. What is time? And you know, my dad and I have always had our political differences, but Mm -hmm. during this particular trip, I just remember we could not stop debating. It was like Mm -hmm. every single conversation, no matter where it started, we could have been talking about the cereal we had for breakfast that morning. And somehow it would turn into a political debate and they weren't nice debates. They got supercharged Mm -hmm. so fast and I would just find myself so angry and I would find myself shouting and taking everything personally and just feeling like I couldn't believe dad would think this way and didn't he raise me differently and just it was so personal and I remember at some point late into an evening after yet another of these debates turned fights I went upstairs to my room like a teenager and I just started weeping I was so frustrated but I was also so sad I love my dad and I hated what this was doing to us he heard me and he came upstairs and we had a good hug it out session and I remember feeling really relieved to just be like showing each other love again instead of Mm. being at each other's throats were you crying because you and someone you love were not seeing eye to eye and that could affect your relationship but also feeling this sense of bewilderment. Like I thought maybe we were closer to the same page than we are. And how did we end up on such different pages and opposing pages when you're the person who raised me and gave me a lot of the values that I, that I now hold dear. Yeah. I think it was all of those things and a combination of those things. I felt personally attacked, but I also felt like just this gulf between us that I worried was like unbroachable, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think debates can be healthy and good and I want to share my perspective and even would hope to persuade him or someone else on some things. But I don't think I was approaching that 
in a healthy way. Part of what you're describing and what I have certainly experienced mm -hmm. as well is that our political views or our ideological bent is not just something abstract. We attach it to this really core sense of who we are. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. when somebody disagrees with us or we get into a debate, it feels like you're not just critiquing my views, you're critiquing me as a person. Mm -hmm. And you add in the faith dimension too, where both sides feel like, oh, you're saying I'm a bad Christian or you're saying oh, I don't really yeah. love the Lord or mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not just wrong, but I'm like sinning or something and holding mm -hmm. these views. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> yeah, it's no wonder a lot of families basically agree either explicitly or just by silence to never talk about things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Be because they've decided, listen, like we know if this comes up, Uncle Jim and Aunt Barb <laughs> are going to be you know, splashing their Thanksgiving martini in each other's faces, which would be kind of fun to see. Entertaining. But not great, for, not great for family unity. And I've never wanted to live that way because I think there's a lot lost in feeling like you can't discuss these things. And as we've said, like sometimes maybe we make the stakes higher than they are, but the stakes are really high on some of these issues. And I don't really want to live in such a way that I can't address these things that I'm passionate about or that I care about. But mm -hmm. I do want to find a way to do it that doesn't destroy a relationship, you know? That is actually a skill that I think in the last four plus years, I've realized I really want to have. I think over the years, I've gotten better about how I engage in disagreement. But what seems like such an amazing skill to have and very rare in this moment is to be able to disagree directly without it becoming a form of disrespect. And I think it's different when it's in person with someone you love versus being online on the internet. I mean, honestly, I think people go online for the fight a lot of times and people are just like jumping on mm -hmm. and immediately attacking the person, deliberately misunderstanding what they're saying. I, I totally agree with you. I think debating online feels in some ways easier to do because it's mm -hmm. more anonymous and because you mm -hmm. don't have to feel the fallout of relational capital in your day-to-day -day life. You can like get out your frustrations by... <laughs> Debating some troll online. <laughs> By debating Theobro165729. Uh, he's showing up in your feed too. I thought I, I, thought I, I muted him. The problem is, is that it doesn't stay online. Like how, like who mm. we are mm. online is who we are, right? And so all of that type of discourse is then shaping our thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. Just in the sense that, you know, in 2017, I spent a lot of time on Twitter in part because I didn't have a full-time job. I was like newly freelancing and I was also really upset about what was going on in the world. And looking back, I just, I remember whole days that felt ruined because I was angry about something that I saw on Twitter. Oh, I find myself rage scrolling way too often. And it like feeds something in me that I get something out of the, uh, like some kind of adrenaline or some kind of like self-righteous fury. And, mm -hmm. and then I don't feel good afterwards. You said that you, you feel like you've kind of learned or grown 
in this area. <laughs> Modestly. <laughs> Modestly. I don't want to claim like... I am healed of all of my rage scrolling. You are a fount of peace and calm online now. Okay, I try to use humor. That's true. I try to balance out like the heat, a little spice, a little sweet. When you think about the way that you approach a debate now online or a conversation that could be heated online, I don't know if I'd call it rules of engagement, but are any? But what are you trying to do differently? Like, yeah, I think I try to have a moment of asking, is it worth engaging? Just recognizing that mm. the stakes aren't unilaterally high with every issue. And so if mm-hmm. I'm going to wait in or I'm going to respond, I want to make sure that it, it really matters. Mm-hmm. Over time, you see that there are just certain people that are going to be bad faith. I mean, I do try to imagine what I would say or how I would say something if I were sitting in front of the person. I think at the end of the day, I would rather have engagement of important topics that are complex and thorny rather than avoidance. I don't think I can constitutionally avoid difficult topics just because sometimes there are difficult disagreements. I agree. So I think the question then is one we've already brought up, which is, well, how do we do that well? And how do we do that in a way that is civilized and respects the person on the other end of the conversation? These are good questions. And I have a sense that our guest might have some thoughts on that. I think it costs us all a little bit of our humanity to live in a society where we just continue sorting away from each other, we lose connectedness, we lose community. I think it costs us a lot. Today's guest is indeed no stranger to high-octane debates. Kirsten Powers is an on-air political analyst and commentator at CNN. She's also author of the new book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. If that title doesn't make you immediately buy the book, I don't know what will. That's a great title. It is. (laughs) Our conversation with Kirsten is coming up. But first, a shout out to our patrons who make Saved by the City possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Get the deets on the God beat. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Give us a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It goes a long way to help get the word out about our show. Or send us an email at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We want to hear from you. And we'll definitely reply with something nice and gracious and totally charitable. And very sweet. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. All right, before we get to Kirsten, let's have a little quiz. Ooh. 
This is straight out of high school debate team. I should have been on it. And these terms are going to sound familiar to you because they get thrown around a lot when people disagree with each other on Twitter. So these are like what we learned in debate class or rhetoric class or something about logical fallacies, like the types of arguments that don't actually hold water in discourse and are bad ways to argue because they're logical fallacies. And in the circular world of online discourse, people accuse each other of making these arguments a lot, often in turn committing another logical fallacy. (laughs) It's a lot of fun. All right. First one, ad hominem. All right. This is when instead of addressing the content of a point or an idea, you attack the person behind it. So an example would be, <laughs> I'm going to pick on Aunt Barb again, who doesn't really exist. I don't have an Aunt Barb, but you get the point. Aunt Barb is wrong because she's always been mean and stingy. Ding, ding, ding. You are correct. <laughs> All right. And you presented a good example. Okay. What about the red herring fallacy? I see this one a lot, but I... Not sure I understand it. Yeah. So I think it's when you divert someone's attention from the main topic so that they're suddenly arguing about something different. So people are so caught up on the separate topic that they end up debating that or talking about that instead of the main topic at hand. It's basically a diversionary tactic. Exactly. Sort of. I think red herrings often lead to like slippery slope arguments Mm -hmm. or even to strawman arguments because you're actually just like diverting somebody away toward a more toward a side issue or toward or starting to say well if that happens then this and so almost like if people were debating how to prevent abuse in churches and someone else were to come along and be like but the real issue is that beth moore is preaching Exactly. And suddenly you're all talking about whether or not women can preach instead of whether or not we should hold people accountable for sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, last one. Uh, Slippery slope fallacy. This is when you argue that if this happens, then this worst thing will happen without showing that there is necessarily a causal link between those two things happening. So an example would be if we legalize marijuana, then we're going to legalize all these other drugs that are worse for people and pretty soon your children will be able to access crack cocaine from their school district. Exactly. All right. So now that we have reminded ourselves, schooled ourselves, educated ourselves on how not to debate, let's hear from our guest about how to debate. Today's guest is Kirsten Powers. She's a senior political analyst at CNN a USA Today columnist, and a New York Times bestselling author. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So great to see you guys. You have a new book out, and one of the things you said early on in the book that caught my attention is you wrote, Ungrace has become the lingua franca of our discourse today. Would you say that's more true now than in the past? Like, Do you think that's actually exacerbated or we just notice it more? or we're just all talking to each other because of social media. What's made you really start to see this as a major part of the problem or even in your own life? 
I would say that it's gotten worse, certainly. And of course, it's been getting worse over a long period of time. But I would say even in the last four Mm. years, it's gotten worse. I do think Donald Trump's style, uh, Mm -hmm. the way he interacted with people and the way he talked, and I think a lot of people started emulating that, just the way people now interact with each other is so toxic. And I would say in the world of cable television, Mm. it's gotten much worse in terms of the sort of contempt Mm. that I think a lot of people have for each other versus disagreeing and recognizing that, yes, we disagree with each other, but there isn't this kind of contempt. And, And sometimes when I listen, you know, when I'm driving around, I live in D.C., and I'm flipping around stations. Sometimes I'll listen to the conservative radio station. Um, it'll be like Michael Savage, some other people. I don't know their names. The way that I hear them now talking about liberals is as mm. if they're subhuman. I mean, mm. even actually mm. using those words, they're not even human. Mm-hmm. You know, they hate you. Really a, a dehumanizing. It's shocking, you know, when I hear it. Uh, and I'm used to hearing, obviously, political language that's pretty extreme. But I do feel like it's moved into another level and that it's been done in a very unconscious way. I don't think people are even stopping and thinking, this isn't normal. (laughs) This is not normal behavior. What's the cost of that language? Like what is at stake when our discourse has become so toxic? I mean, not to be (laughs) melodramatic, but democracy Mm -hmm. would be one of those things, I think, because democracy is predicated on the idea that we accept that people have different ideas and and we sort of work that out in the public square and we work it out at the ballot box, but we don't dehumanize each other. And I think when you Mm -hmm. start seeing dehumanizing and, and real extreme demonizing of the other, then you're headed towards rapid decline and potentially, Mm -hmm. you know, violence, but even without the extreme, I think it costs us all a little Mm -hmm. bit of our humanity to live in a society where we just continue sorting away from each other. We lose connectedness. Mm -hmm. We lose community. We lose this, you know, sense of belonging. We lose a sense that we belong in a, in a country where we may disagree on things, but we all, we all ultimately want to see the country prosper and survive and for all people to do well. Right. So I think it costs us a lot. You've obviously been in the space of political discourse for a long time and have been on cable television. Your job has been to argue in public or debate in public these ideas, to have disagreements over the last five years and having come to this place of, you know, writing a book on grace and grace and discourse. Are you approaching your own job differently? Are there things that you look back and think, I kind of regret doing it that way in the past? Yeah. I mean, part of the book is me reckoning with my past Mm -hmm. and looking back and saying, how have I contributed to this? Because Mm -hmm. it's not something that you can just point the finger at other people and say, Mm -hmm. oh, they're so bad, but I'm so good. When Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. truth is a lot of the time I was very balanced and very thoughtful and, you know, people say I'm the voice of reason and all those other things. And sometimes I was really obnoxious and really judgmental and snarky and all of these other things that don't really align with my values Mm. and what I say I believe. And it got to a point where I was really starting to hate people 
you know, mm-hmm. I really was starting to be filled with hatred. And that, mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. the moment where I thought this just isn't, isn't what I believe. I don't, this is not really how I see the world. I do believe in loving your enemy. And I say in the book, I wish there was like a delete button on the mm-hmm. internet that I could just erase going through and just erase some of the things that I said, some of the things that I wrote. There's a lot of things mm-hmm. I used to believe that I don't believe anymore. I ultimately realized that I needed to make a course correction. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do feel that I'm now coming at things from a more grounded mm-hmm. place, from a more non-judgmental place. Now that doesn't mean I don't make judgments, mm-hmm. but I, but ju- I'm not judgmental. So I could say, I see something. I don't think it's okay. Here's why this behavior is not okay. Here's why this policy is not okay. But I'm not saying this person is beyond mm-hmm. redemption, beyond hope. Mm-hmm. I, I'm seeing the possibilities there, which I think is a real key component of grace. I think back to some of the things that I tweeted yeah. <laughs> circa fall 2016 to fall 2018, just not to put too fine a point on it. Yeah. And I regret how much time I spent arguing with people on the mm-hmm. internet because I don't think it actually changed anyone's mind and it kind of just solidified our disagreement e- even more. But I also regret how angry I got. And so how do we balance having conviction <laughs> and really wanting to try to speak truth, stand up for people mm-hmm. who are being marginalized or dehumanized without doing that right back to other people? What does that balance look like? Or what have you you learned in that? One of the first things you should ask yourself is, is this actually going to make the situation better? Most of the time, if you're thinking about posting something nasty on social media, it's not going to make any difference. Now, social media can be an incredible place for social change, as we saw mm-hmm. with Me Too and Black Lives Matter. I also would check in with Am I saying this to change things or am I saying this to signify to other people that I believe the right, right. things? There's or a lot of posturing. This? So you have to stop and be honest with yourself about why am I doing this? Am I saying this because I know it's going to get a lot of retweets? Am I saying this because I'm angry and I need to vent? Because if that's the case, you need mm-hmm. to you need to talk to a friend mm-hmm. or you need to call your therapist. But you, you need mm-hmm. to find a way to process those emotions where you're not taking it out on other people. But one of the things I always say is never lose your capacity for outrage ever. So people often, when they think of grace, they get sort of confused about it and they think doormat, just mm-hmm, roll mm-hmm, over, just be nice mm-hmm. to everybody. That And that's just not what grace is. That's like, that would be like saying MLK, you know, was a doormat, right? Because he spoke truth, but he he really did speak it with grace. He said very hard things mm-hmm. for me personally, for Kirsten Powers. I could write a column, you know, Mm -hmm. I could maybe do a thoughtful Mm -hmm. post on social media that's not attacking, but trying to ask people to think about something differently. You can volunteer, you can give money. There are lots of things you can do to help the situation that you're concerned about that, that don't involve demeaning other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then sometimes you do have to speak up and you do have to say things that people that are going to upset people. And that's okay. That's not, not grace. What I hear you saying is the point is not to never offend or upset. Exactly. Right. The point is not to always just say things that everyone's going to agree with, but the point is rather to say things in such a way that preserves 
the dignity and honor of the people who are hearing it, even the people who you fiercely disagree with. There's a way to do it where you're not filled with contempt and hatred, which if I'm being totally honest, I was. Mm -hmm. I wasn't just naming a problem. Hmm. I was judging people and I was contemptuous towards people. And, and even when I wasn't expressing that, that was what was happening on in the interior. And that is, and it was making me miserable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I get that. If nothing else, I mean, I think it's like your own like body and physiology and your mind is a, is a warning that like you are going about this wrong. Like this is, this is actually just eating you up if nothing else. Yeah. Well, one of the things that was a real aha moment for me was when I was realizing that, well, first of all, coming to terms with just how judgmental I was, because I think I had this idea that as long as what I was saying was true, Mm -hmm. then I wasn't being judgmental. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I feel like I've noticed just increasingly over, you know, the last several years is it, it feels, especially online, like there's a lot of purity tests right now, like Mm -hmm. on both sides. And the shaming is really kind of the order of the day, even on your own side. But I also see like a lot of good opportunities to call people in or out. But instead, there just seems to be a lot of gotcha, jump on. This is like shaming. In what ways have you found people sort of a good way to gracefully call someone out or call someone in or even have received that yourself? So the First thing you should do ideally is call somebody in, give them mm-hmm. an opportunity to apologize and to make it right. And I have seen that happen. People, particularly anti-racist leaders, I know have called in friends of mine. I was once called in. I talk about it in the book. I mean, this was this was by a friend of mine. I had written something and a black girlfriend called me and said, you need to take that down. Mm. It's going to offend people because you're a white woman kind of weighing in on a conversation that black people are having. And so Mm. I took it down. What happens a lot though, is that people do get called in and they just ignore it. Mm -hmm. And then when they get called out, they play the victim, right? (laughs) But they've ignored people that really have made an effort to, to call them in. Then Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. if you're going to call somebody out, you just have to make sure that you're doing it from like we were talking about earlier, from the right place, not Mm -hmm. to be judgmental over another person. I think the whole call out culture thing is very complicated. And I have a couple chapters on it, really on the cancel culture Mm -hmm. situation. I think that we have to be honest about Mm -hmm. the fact that cancel culture in quotes, I really use that phrase loosely because it just doesn't really mean anything because everybody has a different opinion of what that means exists mostly because our culture has refused to deal with things. Mm -hmm. At the same time, for the people who care about these issues and are calling people out, just be aware of the fact that you're calling a person out very well could lead to them losing their job and their health insurance and their reputation. And, And in some cases that's necessary, but just be aware. So a lot of our conversation has centered on online discourse and how we speak to each other on the internet. I imagine all of us and a lot of our listeners can think of deep disagreements within their own families, among their friend groups. How does this all play out in enfleshed relationship? How do you navigate deep disagreement in those in-person relationships? 
It depends on what the differing belief is. If the differing belief is something that you think you can agree to disagree, Mm -hmm. then you can do that. If the differing belief is, you know, a racist belief, then I think you, you do have an obligation to try to, you know, engage. And so then you have to figure out what are the ways that you can engage. And so I have a lot of social science in the book about how people change their minds, Mm -hmm. which is they don't very often, but if they do, it's not because you're Mm -hmm. bombarding them with facts. It's because you're, you're listening empathically, you're sharing stories about real people, Mm -hmm. you're recognizing the goodness in them, and then trying to sort of call them back to what their core values are. But I think that you you just need to be mindful of the way people change their minds mm-hmm. and have some also some grace for the fact that we all have brains that seek confirmation. We all are drawn to the people that mm-hmm. are like us and all these things. And to say, you know, this person is doing the best that they can with the information that they have. And, and if we're being honest, a lot of times people are getting really bad information. It's really hard when we don't share an epistemological baseline. Yes. (laughs) One of the most helpful observations that Jonathan Haidt has made is that essentially we come to facts to fill in what we sense is already true. Exactly. We don't, as you said, Kirsten, most of us don't change our minds via a presentation of facts. We, We feel, we sense, intuit that something is morally or ethically true, and then we build a framework around which to justify <laughs> our prior yeah. moral convictions. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We decide what we believe and then we make up a bunch of reasons to support it. Exactly. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Our brain is designed to, to do that mm-hmm. basically. And most of us live in ideological bubbles. I think it's a challenge to break out of our ideological bubbles. Are there practices that you have where you're like, I, where you try to get out of your own bubble? I think for me, I'm not so much exposed to other people. I just really practice Mm non-judgmentalism. So when I encounter it, I sort of try to step back and just say, okay, this is not what I believe and it's, it's not okay, but this person is doing the best that they can. I tend to blame the leaders. Mm -hmm. So those would be the people I would have the hardest time, like a Tucker Carlson. Mm -hmm. That's the person I have to really work at with the the nod judgmentalness because that's who's causing this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a grift. You shouldn't blame people for not being cynical. Mm. (laughs) You know, I live in DC. I I work in politics and media. So of course I've learned to be cynical, right? Mm -hmm. That's not actually a great way to live. And that's not what we should expect of people. So, you know, I say grace is allowing other people to not be you. Mm. <laughs> yes. Right? And Isn't so, that which so is, frustrating? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a radical idea that like you cannot be me and you can believe all sorts of things that I don't believe and actually not be a horrible human being. And I think if you can get to know people who are different mm-hmm. than you, then it does help. And the social science shows Absolutely. that mm-hmm. when they can get the person to think about somebody that they know, it doesn't even have to be a friend who doesn't share your views, the minute they start thinking about that person, they depolarize. Mm-hmm. They stop seeing the, uh, the other side mm-hmm. as being this sort of big blob, mm-hmm. you know, that they hate, mm-hmm. right? I think we have to recognize that people are multifaceted. And, mm-hmm. and so to your point about social media earlier, social media reinforces the stereotypes. It does. Mm-hmm. It amps up the stereotypes. And so then you start thinking, this is what they're all like. And they're all horrible and they're all ruining the world. Right. 
because on a screen they are only ever going to be these two-dimensional blobs that are in the other group that say the things that drive you crazy and their most incendiary comments get retweeted and blasted and then in response it's also very incendiary and you're it's just a chain of reactions and you're doom scrolling at 11 o'clock on a Friday night and you're like what am I doing this is so bad for me the people who are on social media and posting are like tiny sliver Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of percentages of society right and Mm -hmm. so they're really not representative of anything and they're often the loudest or the most extreme Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think if you want to practice grace, you have to really cut back on social media. Mm-hmm. Have you done that? Have you cut back a lot? Oh, yeah. The first thing I did was I got off Twitter. I, I wasn't on Facebook. And then I cut back on Instagram. And I cut back on the news, mm-hmm. TV news, because that's mm-hmm. what's most activating to me. Mm-hmm. And, and then after a period of time, I started slowly opening myself back up to it. But I would say in a week, I spend maybe a total of an hour mm-hmm. on social media. So, wow. Well, I yeah, feel convicted. It, <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's it, awesome. <laughs> that's great. I have a quote in the book from a therapist that I interviewed. And I don't, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but like it was, it was something along the lines of how much you're expressing yourself on social media should be proportionate to your wellness. Mm. She maintains there's a lot of unwellness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would say that was me a hundred percent. I was, I was unwell. Mm. I was, I had not dealt with my trauma. People who have unintegrated trauma, I see things very black and white, which social media is extremely black and white. There's, there's no middle ground. And so that was kind of how I thought about things. And so I, I felt very attracted to that. Hmm. Whereas now I go on and I'm just like, whoa, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Like, this is a lot. This is a lot. Well, beyond taking a break from social media, which probably Roxy and I, as well as a lot of our listeners need to do, I think reading your upcoming book, Saving Grace, is going to be helpful for a lot of people and hopefully helpful to our democracy, to our relationships, to To our Thanksgiving dinners, (laughs) to seeing each other differently and with grace and and compassion. And we just thank you so much for your insights, for the work that you've put into your book. And we look forward to reading it soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was such a nice conversation. Thank you for being here. You can follow Kirsten on Twitter at Kirsten Powers and check out her new book, Saving Grace. Speak your truth, stay centered, and learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Wyndham. Chaz Russo put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.